The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, we have an extra special bonus podcast. Last month, I went to the TD Elite Link Conference, which is a small gathering of about 200 advisory firm executives that run over $300 billion. This is an annual event, goes from city to city each year. Uh, this year, it was in lovely Dana Point. Uh, if you know that part of California next to Laguna, it's just spectacular oceanfront, uh, as lovely a location for a conference as you'll find. I had the privilege of interviewing Tim Hockey. He is the CEO and president of TD Ameritrade, a company that serves both individual investors and independent RIAs. They have total client assets of about $1.3 trillion dollars as of the end of the second quarter 2019. They are the custodian of choice for a number of RIAs. Uh, they are one of my two custodians. We work with TD and Schwab at RWM. And um, the other person I interviewed was Tom Nally. He is the president of TD Ameritrade Institutional, which provides custody and brokerage services to more than 7,000 uh, independent RIAs. That's about $650 billion uh, under custody. This is very much an inside baseball conversation. If you are an RIA, if you are interested in the investment management or financial planning business, then this really is uh, inside baseball stuff that is must listen. So with no further ado, my interview with Tim Hockey and Tom Nally. So the real brief introduction, when I was doing the homework for this, TD manages or, or custodies 1.3 trillion in total client assets, 860,000 average clients trades per day, um, generating about a billion and a half revenues a year. That is a really substantial set of data. Um, and it says a lot about what this organization is about. So, so let's start with some questions, beginning with Tim. So what does it mean to be a CEO of such an enormous organization? How do these challenges differ from other roles you've played within the company? Uh, well, I was talking to the uh, advisor panel uh, this morning, and I've said it's now been three and a half years since, uh, since I took on the job as CEO. Uh, and having come from the, the TD Bank in Canada, it's a fairly dramatic difference. Um, the, the dramatic difference is, uh, you know, the phrase, the buck stops here. Uh, you feel that in spades uh, in, in this job and this role in particular. An enormous sense of responsibility uh, to the, all of the constituents. It doesn't matter whether it's your associates or your clients or your, your shareholders or, frankly, the communities that, uh, that all of our people work in. 
uh, it's just that sort of um, don't want to let people down, I guess, is the, uh, uh, is the largest issue. The, the biggest shift from the job, if you graduate into this role, into C role to get promoted in, is, is literally the, the time horizon. Your, your time horizon, by definition, has to shift out. Um, if you want to geek out on management theory for a second, uh, the, the, the basic premise is organizational hierarchies, levels of an organization, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever it is, um, they all depend on what sort of time horizon you have. So if you're a, if you're a bank teller, you know, you've got a time horizon of one day, right? It's your shift. If you are processing a piece of paper as an administrator, it's a one day time horizon. If you're an entry level supervisor, that's second level, then it's uh, a very short period of time, probably a week, maybe a couple of weeks. As you go up the organization, your time horizon has to shift out. So if you go from Tom's level, six, seven levels in the organization, you can have a time horizon of saying, how do I uh, transform the institutional business with five to 10 years of, of time horizon? And then at the CEO of the firm level, you should be running from 10 to 20 years. And that, uh, that means you've got to try and keep all your balls moving to be able to um, you know, hit those objectives a long way out with a lot of variability. So anyway, enough geeking out, but uh, that's, that's the biggest difference in, in this so job. So let me pull it back from the geek side. When, when you find out um, you're going to be CEO, you say to yourself, I don't think people really know who I am. Maybe I should write a book and tell a little bit about myself. Explain the thought process there. Uh, well, thankfully, it wasn't a book. That would have taken too long. But uh, after being at, uh, at TD for 32 years and pretty much knowing uh, everybody knowing me, when I came to TD Ameritrade, I realized it was going to be an unknown quantity. And uh, anytime you have a new boss, what does everybody think? They, they say, all right, well, what's he or she like? You know, what's their management style? What do they value? And we generally, with a new boss, will spend literally months or years trying to figure that person out. And so what I did when I got here was to, to recognize that that was what you know, Tom and the rest of the team was thinking about. And I actually spent some time on a very rainy weekend uh, at my place in South Carolina. And pen something I called the, I think it was user's manual to Tim or user's guide to Tim. Uh, and it just basically was an open book. I said, here's what I, what I think about management. Here's what I believe. Here's you know, everything you would want to know about me. And, and you know, take a glass of red wine and, and read it. And hopefully it'll be helpful. And then hold me accountable to it. Uh, and that's, that's, the, that's the trick. And so then I sent it out to my leadership team. And they then said, well, can we send it to our leadership team? And they said, can we send it to our leadership team? And that was the theory behind it. Uh, very, very good practice to go through. I would highly recommend it, uh, not just because I think it's helpful for, for as a new leader in an organization. Uh, I actually went through it with my wife and my two boys, and they're the harshest critic, and so they read the first draft and the second draft, and they said, yeah, that's, that's not right. <laughs> so change that, fix that. Um, uh, but it, it does force you to be crystal clear in your expectations of yourself and, and live up to those with your team. And I can say it was incredibly helpful for somebody who was trying to understand, okay, who is this guy that just, you know, has shown up on the scene that, based upon a relationship with TD, kind of have some level of familiarity with him because of his previous role, and you get to see him once a year in this big, giant convention speak, but then to actually see this and, and understand who he is as a person, it just gives you a nice roadmap to, to figuring out, okay, how do I interact with him? And uh, it was really incredibly helpful. So, Tom, let, let's talk a little bit um, about you. You've helped ramp TD up to 7,000 independent RIAs custodying with uh, TD Ameritrade, 
Ameritrade Interna Institutional. Um, that's a giant success by any measure. What was that process like, and, and where did you encounter major roadblocks? Well, I would say it was a long slog. I mean, we've been at this for you know, more than two decades now, and uh, I think it all started with just having a really keen focus on understanding you know, what the needs of the advisor actually are and trying to craft a value proposition that delivers on those needs and make sure it was able to evolve over time as those needs change, as the market changed, and so on and so forth. And it's been an incredible you know, ride. I mean, we've been trying to take advantage of this massive secular trend towards the independent REA model that is, we don't think, going to slow down anytime soon. It's great for our industry. It's, it's great for uh, financial services in, in general. You know, it's amazing when you see the beauty of just putting the client first, what can happen. And that goes for us. It goes for you. It's been a, a, a wonderful road. And, you know, we feel like we're just getting some momentum here as people become more aware of what it is REAs actually do and, and how it's doing the right thing for, for clients, which is fantastic. So what were the big surprises on the road to 7,000 and, and beyond? Well, I think just the change that's taken place in our space, you know, how adv advisors' businesses have, have evolved and changed. When I first started, most REA firms were portfolio allocation shops. And then they started to become comprehensive wealth management firms, adding on more and more services. And today, basically, you know, all of you are being asked by your clients to be all things, you know, give me advice on all things that have to do with money in my life. And think about that. I mean, it's basically everything. So we're trying to keep up with the evolution of what your clients are demanding from you and enable you to deliver great client experience you know, at scale, high quality. So it's, it's, it's been amazing just to watch that happen and see how the industry has evolved. The other thing is just the shift and the trend towards RAAs versus the wirehouses. You know, in the last 10 years, wirehouses have lost about 11 points of market share, and the REA channel has captured about eight, eight points of that, which is, which is spectacular. And the more and more consumers get smarter about the relationships that they enter into, you know, that'll continue to change. The more advisors recognize that I can do this better on my own rather than being in a captive environment, we'll continue to see advisors shift and, and go independent and join existing firms. We've seen an enormous amount of capital flow in, so it's, it's, it's been an amazing, amazing ride. So, Tim, you have to balance your, your attention on two different groups. On the one hand, you have all of your RIA clients. On the other hand, there are shareholders, uh, and there are owners of TD that um, need to be satisfied. How do you balance the two of those? Where is the focus? And do you ever um, find a place where it's sometimes challenging to strike the, the exact right tone? I don't think it's actually a trade-off between the two. Um, you know, my general philosophy, and I think I wrote it down, down in that book, was you take care of your associates, they take care of your clients, and the clients then take care of the shareholders. In that sort of sequence, um, actually, I can, I can draw a little bit on your last question of Tom to sort of make the point. Uh, everybody in this room has participated in this extraordinary uh, shift to the RAA channel over the last uh, 10 years, uh, said this morning, it's, it's tripled in size and, um, in 10 years, but uh, Tom's business, he started stuffing envelopes uh, in, in institutional <laughs> business, you know, how many years ago now was it, Tom? That uh, was 25. Yeah. 
25 years. I wasn't going to out it, but okay. But it was 25 <laughs> years ago we started in the institutional business for, for TDA, and we've grown six times. And so you have that sort of focus on doing right by your clients and helping them be successful, and the shareholder gets massively rewarded. And um, I also you know, shared this story with the panel this morning. I thought it was a great one because we actually went and did a, a long-term view of our, of our performance as a company. Here we are as a, as a wealth management firm. We should take a look at our own performance and say, how have we done? So here's, here's how the math works. I think it's a fun story. We IPO'd as a company in 1997. Uh, uh, adjusted price, a buck fifty. So here we are now at uh, 50 and change. So there were 4,600 public companies uh, back in 1997. In, those, uh, in the intervening years, 2,400 of those 4,600 uh, were bought. So they consolidated into the others. 1,100 of those 4,600 uh, companies basically um, were delisted, so they're gone. So about 1,100 companies left. We're still one of the 1,100. Then if you say, all right, what was the size of those companies? Of those 1,100, there was about 600 that had this similar market cap to we did when we IPO'd it, about $200 million market cap. Mm -hmm. Now we're $30 billion. So out of those 600 companies that remain, um, we rank order them in terms of total shareholder return. And we are number 11 out of 600 over those 22 years since our uh, IPO. No big surprise as to uh, who's number one, Apple. But uh, I think that long-term success and performance as a company going back from the IPO days uh, comes from being a combination of the right things. Great leadership. You know, I've only been here three years, but you know, guys like Tom, 25 years, and Fred and Joe and our founder um, riding a wave of, of success, focusing on your clients and the value you can deliver, and the shareholder gets intensely rewarded for that. So this has just been a great ride for us. So, Tom, let's talk a little bit about some of the elements that have led to this success, starting with technology. If there's a question I hear from advisors more than anything else, it's how can I be cutting edge uh, and provide the technology I need to run my business and my clients want without getting distracted by every new shiny object that comes along? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think, you know, our view is technology is the great enabler, right? It enables you to deliver more services to your clients and, you know, have a more robust value proposition. And I think you almost need to break that into two different things, right? The first thing is there's probably a lot that are mature technologies that are out there that you can take advantage of now in the immediate term to improve your efficiency, your client experience, many times that's you know, one and the same, and work on implementation. On the second half of it, you really need to keep your ear to the tracks around what are consumer trends, what are you know, the expectations of the consumer, not just in financial services, but in just the way they interact in their life. You know, with Amazon, Google, you know, Apple, a lot of the, the top companies, to see how those trends are evolving, and then work with a firm like ours to give us insights into what it is that you need. What you need, what we're seeing is a lot of firms getting pushed into adding these additional services so how can we partner together to deliver you technology you know, at scale that you might not be able to do on your own? So I, I think there's a combination of factors that you need to focus on there. But technology really is the biggest opportunity out there. Because if you think about it, everything in your business 
is pretty much going to be automated, which is a good thing. Technology is a tool for all of us to utilize across every facet of, of whether it's trading, rebalancing, you know, risk management, CRM, portfolio, you know, uh, reporting the whole nine yards. And that just frees you up to spend more time deepening relationships with your clients, which is what clients really care about. You know, we had one advisor say to me one time, and it really stuck with me, and I, I continue to bring this up. Nobody ever walks in the office and says, I want to beat the S&P by five points. They walk in and say, am I going to be okay? And technology enables you to have all of those tactical things done in an automated fashion so you can spend the time really getting to understand what are the hopes, dreams, fears of those clients and make sure that you're, you're meeting those needs and, and delivering on what they're most concerned about. So, so you mentioned rebalancing as a technology. How do you decide internally, hey, we can build something that will push a button and automatically rebalance and do some tax loss harvesting? Or, oh, maybe there's a company out there that might be much more mature and further along, and it will be faster and more efficient to buy it like uh, iReval. Mm -hmm. How does that decision build or buy, be made, and, and what sort of elements are you thinking about? See, from our perspective, when we go through that you know, uh, equation, I mean, we really are looking, if we're going to make an acquisition, where there's got to be white space, where we can be an industry leader, and it fits within our core capabilities of the services that we, type, we try and deliver and, and get strategic advantage. Like with iRebal now, iRebal has you know, probably more than 50% market share in that rebalancing space, so there was an opportunity there. If we don't think that we can, can carve that out for ourselves, we would rather have an open, which our technology platform is very open architecture. You can plug in many different types of systems. Um, we'd rather partner with industry leaders and then work to give advisors, advisors guidance on how do you put the best technology stack together that meets your and your clients' needs. So it's more it's a, a build by partner type uh, mm -hmm. arrangement. Now, from a, uh, from a build it yourself perspective, we do try and be very focused around sticking within our swim lane mm -hmm. so that we can you know, not have to spread our resources too thin and make sure that we're not leaking into areas where some of our technology partners within the space are going to do a better job than us. So it's being really focused and understanding you know, how you're going to deliver value. Just to add on a little bit, um, really three types of decisions, three types of acquisitions you'd want to make. The first is when you need to do a strategic pivot. There's just a, you know, your end of life with the, your particular business model. You say, okay, I've got the capital, I've got the cash cow, now let me buy something that gives me a brand new capability. No synergies, you invariably pay too much for it, uh, but in the long term it pays off because you're safe. Second one is a scale play, right? Um, and the third one is that capability add. I remember back when we did the Scott Trade deal a couple of years ago, the Wall Street Journal article the day after that was announced uh, was written by a, an article uh, by a, a journalist who said, oh, they, they're investing too much in the old model, uh, as in the consolidation, the scale play of Scott Trade and ourselves. They should have bought a robo-advisor. And of course, at the time, they were saying we should have spent $500 million or thereabouts for uh, in a robo-advisor player with you know, no assets to speak of. We looked at that, and, we, and I sort of laughed, because this, the, the creation of the, of the value by doing the Scott Trade deal was enormous. And to, uh, to make the equation of buying a robo-player at $500 million versus building it yourself in terms of the capability at about $5 million. Right. 
So you would have paid you know, 100 times what, the, what it would take you because we already had the capability to, to put the pieces together and spend a fraction of the price. So that's sort of the equation. Goes so, so since you bring up Robo, let's talk a little bit about Schwab has an automated solution. Vanguard crossed 100 billion in that. What do you think of this space? Is this the sort of thing? Um, Betterment recently pivoted and began offering a white label version of their robo to advisors. What do you guys think of this space? Is this something we could see um, a little higher profile or not, not in your swim lane? Yeah, so we've long thought that robo isn't a business model. It's a technology that is just another version of what Tom was talking it's tool. about. Yeah. It's a tool that comes along and it provides yet more automated versions of services. And um, so there are different versions of that. If you go fully automated, the current uh, maturity of, of our space and our client's desire is most people try the fully automated uh, model and then realize you know, you need to bolt on a human element to make it really successful. Because of the pricing that, uh, of the business models, my view is you can't really get to scale until you're at a 50 or $60 billion asset level. And that's really tough for the sole providers and, and the, um, the fintech upstarts to get to that level. There'll be one or two survivors of, in my view, of robos as a, as a business model, but what you see is the maturation in the industry, which is all the established players come to the party, usually a little later, and they offer that capability and they already have the distribution strength, they have the brand, they have the, the client perception, and then they, they tend to gather assets a lot faster. You know, it's really interesting though, just to add on to that, we were, because we have an open architecture technology platform, we were one of the first adopters to go out there and partner with about a dozen you know, different robo-technology firms that some were going directly after the consumer and were going to be an RAA themselves and found, because of all the challenges that Tim just mentioned, they don't have the distribution, the brand, the, the capability, they quickly pivoted to, hey, now we're going to distribute through advisors and they were expecting advisors to have a bifurcated business model where they were going to go down market and utilize the robo as the solution while they're keeping their high net worth offering the same. And they didn't really see that materialize. So we saw very low adoption. And we actually have a product for our retail clients. And it was built with the ability to pivot and deliver those capabilities to advisors if the demand surfaced. And it really hasn't come to fruition. We haven't seen a lot of advisor adoption of that type of technology um, because they just haven't figured out how to you know, bifurcate the market and, and so on and so forth. So both of you have made reference to what's going on in fees. There's been a transition to some degree from active to passive, but the bigger transition seems to be from expensive to cheap. How much lower can fees get? How cheap is cheap? Tim? Uh, well, I think there's a pressure on um, price, period. Doesn't matter what sector you are in industry, let alone in wealth management, whether it be asset management, whether it be uh, commissions on, on trades, there's a constant pressure. So, why is that? Well, because there are clearly excess rents that are being earned. Um, if a competitor can enter the space, eke out a profit, a rational profit, and a reasonable profit, and a return on their capital, and at a lower price, they're going to do that. That is absolutely a, uh, that's a good thing for consumers. That's a good thing for the economy to have. Uh, price competition. 
Um, so what does it force you to do? Well, it forces you to get big enough uh, so that you can have scale to be able to, to match that on the way down. It forces consolidation in the industry, which is not always good. Um, uh, but it certainly keeps everybody on their toes. I don't think the uh, pressure is going to abate because it hasn't to date. <laughs> the, uh, you know, we were formed, I'd like to say back to that you know, 1975 date when our industry was formed, when the regulations changed. Think about it. The regulation that was changed was allowing price competition amongst brokers. Um, I had a, a chance to, to get a copy of, uh, it's a galley copy, it's not yet published, it's the, it's the um, autobiography uh, from our founder. And so I'm reading through it and I'm getting these sort of interesting little anecdotes from uh, when, uh, you know, pre-IPO and, and in 1975. And the reason why the term discount brokerage actually got coined, I didn't realize this, it was a derisory term uh, that was coined by the full service firms because it was supposed to be you know, negotiated commissions, but they just said, oh, no, you're a discount broker. You know, you're, just, you're just discount, notably cheap, as in no value add. And the time has happened, or, you know, and, and back then, of course, it was, trades were 50 bucks, and 60 bucks a trade, and 75 bucks a trade. And uh, that was that, a that's huge the discount. discount. That was yeah. the discounted right. price in 1975. And here we are at, you know, uh, now call it 90% off that price point, or 85% off that price point in the intervening period of time. And we're still talking about, ooh, the prices are going down to, you know, four, three, two, one, zero. Um, my own view is there's no such thing as a free lunch. There never has been. Uh, there will always be um, a margin that needs to be eked out uh, if there is value provided to clients, and clients will happily pay for, uh, for that value. So, so let's talk a little cheap. bit about that, because I, I love that topic. I think people get so enthusiastic about cheap, which is great, they don't realize free is misleading, because nothing is free. Right. You're paying somewhere. Some of your competitors, who will go without being mentioned, um, offer free asset allocation, free robo-advisor, and then there's a little asterisk, and it turns out that free is kind of expensive. You, you've discussed this in public in the past. What, what are your thoughts on free? Yeah. Um, so again, uh, theory from my point of view is you don't want to just compete on absolute price because tri price itself is a race to the bottom and it just means you have to be cheap, 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 cheap. If, if, you're, com if you're having a choice between competing only on price or primarily on price or on product or on the client experience and it is a race to the bottom, you know, I've said to my team many times, we think we can create the most value uh, and stand out from a client experience point of view in terms of all the capabilities we add for our clients, if we add enough value, you will pay a reasonable price for that value. Um, by investing that return, if you will, for, uh, for the next little while, if prices go down to zero, let's just imagine that you know, five years from now, um, uh, prices are going to go down to zero. Now there's two ways to compete, product and the client experience, because price is now equated to zero for everybody. And if that's the case, you better have wished you've differentiated yourself on the client experience in the intervening time, because now how do the cheap players compete? Right? They've been very cheap. They probably don't have the differentiating factors. Uh, and as a result, they're going to be uh, stuck a little bit, uh, making a difference. So uh, having said that, there is no zero. There is no absolute free lunch. And as you've said, there are different pricing models, some of uh, straight up front, uh, and some of it has got uh, 
hidden costs that the client does end up playing somewhere. You're champing at the bit. Yeah, I mean, just two things. I mean, from an REA perspective, what's interesting is it's one of the areas in financial services where you haven't seen a lot of price compression, but what you've actually seen is just being advisors being forced to add more services in order to differentiate their value proposition, which adds expense, which makes technology and efficiency that much more important so that you can maintain profitability and so on and so forth. So technology really is the key, and we think that's going to continue to, to happen. I think you also need to look at relative value. It's amazing to me when you see one of the major wirehouses just lowered the cost of their you know, basic out-of-the-box separate account program from 275 basis points to 250 basis points is the max fee. And they didn't go to 150, right? So it lets you know that people are still paying that price. And if you think about what a consumer is getting when they're going to an REA firm that uses TDA, and the services that they get, and the fact that their advisor is sitting on the same side of the table as them, and the technology experience they're able to have on a relative basis, they're basically paying less than half for a much better experience. It's, it's all about relative value, I think. So you raise a valid point, and I want to throw it towards the audience. How should advisors, who are more or less charging similar fees, communicate their value add to both clients and prospective clients. It's one of the biggest challenges that we have because what's happening is as advisors add more and more services, some of those services become commoditized depending on what type of business you run. You know, there are many firms out there that are just not trying to generate alpha, just utilizing index funds and so on and so forth, but yet they are still charging a percentage of assets under management, but where clients find the most value is in the comprehensive wealth management and that financial planning and estate planning and so on and so forth. So we're seeing firms start to figure out, hey, we need to experiment with minimum fees. We need to think about maybe broadening, should it be based upon total net worth rather than just investable assets because you're, you're advising on so much more of a holistic uh, you know, view of the client's life and, and their wealth. So there's a lot of challenges out there, especially with the introduction of the robos where you hear, hey, this robo will do everything for 25 basis points. That's tough to market against, but it's the new client that you have to be worried about. The existing client already realizes, oh my gosh, my advisor does so much for me. My life is in order. I couldn't imagine not having the services that they provide. I would never go to a robo that's charging 25. You know, so articulating that value proposition and the differentiation is, is one of the big challenges you have out there. So Vanguard wrote a piece a couple of years ago. I'm sure half the room is familiar with Advisors Alpha. And it raises the perspective of the behavioral counseling is worth more than the asset allocation, more than the stock picking, more than all those things. Because if in a downdraft you panic and sell, and yep. we know tons of people who dump stocks in March 09 and didn't get back for years, um, none of that matters if your behavior is, is inappropriate. So how significant is the behavioral side of what everyone in this room does for their clients. I mean, that's where the, the juice is squeezed. That's where you know, the money is made. That's where the value is delivered. Um, whatever you want to say. I mean, it's, it's amazing. There was a great stat from Morningstar, too. A client can have 29% more income in retirement if they hire a financial planner. 
I mean, that is an unbelievable stat. And, and think about most people hire a financial planner 20 years too late, right? They've already made so many mistakes in their lives that all of a sudden they're 45 years old and now it's time to go hire a financial planner. If we can get people engaged earlier in getting to avoid some of those mistakes, make the right decisions, I mean, that value will go up exponentially. So I think it's, it's all about the, you know, the coaching. You know, don't worry. Let, we're playing the long game. When we see what happens during periods of volatility, most advisory firms shift from going out there and going after organic growth to, hey, we've got to placate the base. We've got to make sure that our existing clients are keeping their eye focused on the longer time horizon and the long-term goal. We should anticipate periods of this market volatility but it's not going to knock us off track. So that is invaluable. It's, it's almost immeasurable. Yeah, I can't, uh, can't reinforce that point enough. The, the power of a disciplined process that you work through with your clients or just generally uh, all of us in life, it's the compounding effect of those incremental things uh, that you can do that will make the dramatic difference in the longer term. And that, to your point, is, is largely uh, holding people accountable. It's that coach. It's that, uh, it's that discipline that all coaches, whether it be your financial coach or your sports coach or whatever else, that enables you to do. Because left to our own devices, clients and, and ourselves as individual humans won't follow that same discipline. It, it's just human nature to yeah. shoot ourselves in the foot and the advisor there yeah. to stop that. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So speaking of um, shooting yourself in the foot, we, we know lots of advisors like bells and whistles, and they want more and more and more on their um, front end and back end of the technology. What is the biggest request you're seeing from some of the new tech? What, what is this room asking from TD? Well, I would say there's two, two things. One is around just automating all of the processing. Right, making sure that we can no longer have to be doing data entry to open a new account or changing an address or anything like that. How can we have a digital environment? Because that creates efficiency for all of us, both at TDA and for advisors, but it also leads to a better client experience. You know, Tim was mentioning earlier, we spoke at the advisor panel where it's one of the first times you have the intersection of investing in efficiency and improving your client experience are kind of one and the same. So those investments are, are, are really paying off. It's a, it's a great way to, to look at it because that's the kind of stuff that nobody likes to do that data entry work. It's kind of silly in the technology world that we have today, the capabilities, we shouldn't have to do that. So, so that's a short to immediate term. The second thing is as folks are getting pulled into these adjacencies that maybe they didn't give guidance on in the past, things like long-term care and elder care and college planning and things like that, you know, even around uh, you know, just managing your, your health care, what, what plan should I sign up for? These are expertise that advisors didn't necessarily have in the past, so looking for ways to deliver those services at scale with high quality. That's the thing that we're really exploring now, so we'd love to hear you know, from the audience you know, over the last couple of days, what are the things that your clients are pulling you into as they ask you to help you navigate everything within their financial lives, and how can we help you, you know, uh, solve some of those problems? 
So when Vanguard's new CEO started uh, recently, Tim Buckley, I got to do a 10-question Q&A. And one of the questions was, what keeps you up most at night? His answer kind of startled me. It was cybersecurity and hacking. Uh, so first is, what keeps you up at night? And how concerned should we all be about digital security? Yeah, I would say if you asked any CEO, Barry, 90% of them today would say that exact same answer, me included. And you have to ask yourself why. It's because it's one of those nightmare scenarios that even though we all, uh, we spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars on this, it's an arms race. And the other side uh, is very much incented to try and keep you on your toes because if they find a little crack in the door, they can, they can not only uh, rob you and your clients, but you have an idiosyncratic reputational event. Mm -hmm. right? So it's one thing to be, uh, oh, I don't know, we have a market meltdown, and then anybody that's in the wealth management space basically rides that wave um, onto, the, onto the rocks. If you have a cybersecurity event, it's usually you have been attacked and your clients have been exposed. And uh, that's just a nightmare, an absolute nightmare scenario. Now, I can tell you the, the counter-argument to that, um, uh, and it might seem a little, uh, a little strange, but as time goes on, and uh, there are a number of these data breaches, um, I think consumers are becoming immune to the, the, the next headline that sort of says, hey, 100,000 cards here, or you know, a million records here, and you know, my, the IRS database was breached, and the target data, and people sort of go, wow, yet another one. But it's like all things, even though these, these incredibly bad events happen to the company, I think consumers are actually becoming numb to that effect. And partly it's because you don't often see that the next follow-on article to that, you know, Target has a billion, you know, whatever it is, uh, credit cards being breached, and 150,000 clients had their, you know, financial records erased or money stolen. So the headline risk is huge to CEOs, mm -hmm. and so we never want to be in that. And yet, what's fascinating is you don't actually see as many of the downstream implications of those breaches coming to fruition. And so I've always sort of curious as to what's happening to all that data and why is it not being are, exploited are to we, a much greater degree. Are we seeing advisors and clients becoming a little more sophisticated about security? I, I think we absolutely are. I think it keeps a lot of advisors up at night as well. And, and one of the things that we've seen is we've seen the perpetrators move from going after a TDA to going after an advisory firm, and now the, the, the weakest you know, link in the chain is the end client itself. And we see on a daily basis you know, clients that have their emails hacked, and they send an email to the advisor, the, the bad guy, and saying, hey, you know, I'm in you know, Spain for my sister's you know, wedding, and I need you know, $100,000 wired immediately to this bank account. And it's amazing how many people will just send those instructions in, and you know, next thing you know, the uh, the money's gone. So you've got to be really, you know, vigilant in making sure that you are verbally confirming with the client that this is in fact you, because email hacks are happening dozens of times a day that we see. Luckily, we're able pro to prevent most of them because advisors' awareness has has, uh, has has gotten much better. But it's a it's a serious issue. Yeah, the the social engineering 
way of hacking in is way more productive in the sense that they find out the name of the principal of the firm or the CEO and find a way to spoof your email, get that information. People just say, well, obviously it's not a hack per se. I just got an email from the CEO saying, why are this money or whatever it is. The, the alternative is broad scale. You've got, a, you've got a breach that people get directly in. Uh, so, you know, as firms, we, we are now doing much more. We, first of all, we're, we're starting with an assumption that says the bad guy is in the walls. Mm -hmm. And what do you do knowing that you've already been breached? Now, that's a supposition because we can't find them, but it changes your mindset as a firm from a security point of view if you assume they're already inside the moat. That's the first thing. Second thing is we started actually doing um, bug bounties, uh, which is literally, unlike having a red hat team or a white hat team, black hat, depending on how you define them, of internal players to try and find your bugs, you just pay money to people who tell you they found one. And uh, we're actually finding that we've, uh, I think we've taken the cost of detecting a bug down by about two-thirds. And we're just essentially uh, incenting bad guys to come in and poke at us. And then come and tell us and we'll pay them. Way more effective than uh, just waiting for a very small subset of people with technical skills to actually breach you and find their way all the way in. So, sounds like it's, it's working. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about cash, because people have been discussing raising cash, carrying cash, cash is king. It used to be that cash had a fairly decent yield on it. Some of your competitors have changed their rules that their cash sweeps no longer yield much more than a few bips. If you want to see a return, you have to actually go out and buy some short-term bonds, typically through an ETF. Tell us about what's going on with cash sweeps. What are you guys going to do? And what do you think about what some of your competitors are doing? Yeah, so let me, let me start with just the macro trends. It goes back to the point about what, how does a firm get paid? And in a world where, let's go all the way back, in a world where you're getting paid 30 or 40 or $50 a trade, um, and interest rates are on an absolute level higher, then you've got a more varied revenue stream and when you have a rate, uh, a, a period of rising interest rates, your betas, betas tend to be higher. What we've seen now with other revenue uh, forms, as we said a few minutes ago, ago being compressed, and a, an ultra-long period of low interest rates, then what we found this most recent cycle, as interest rates start to rise, is the betas have been quite low. And now they've been higher in uh, forms of cash where there is a higher degree of customer sensitivity to, the, to putting that cash to, to work. And in our particular space, um, because it tends to be transactional cash waiting for the next opportunity to make a trade if you're in, in retail, then that is very sticky cash. And it is, it is, it's largely the way that uh, the firm has become more and more uh, compensated for the services provided. And so if you imagine a world where uh, if commissions were to be zero in the brokerage space, cash would be even more important as a way of getting paid. And you'll find even less um, beta in terms of the, the value of that cash, which puts actually the, the industry at great strategic risk because uh, interest rates fluctuate <laughs> mm -hmm. and you can have you know 300 basis point um, uh, short-term rates are 500 or, as we know, zero for a period of time. So that's the, that's the trend that's been happening in a, in a macro basis. Now, what we do from a cash perspective, we actually look at 
the differentiation between transactional cash and investing cash, recognizing that some advisors want to keep a portion of the client's portfolio. So the sweep is the BDA, the bank deposit account, but you can actually go out and buy a purchased money fund, which yields considerably higher, but you have to go out and actually you know, take action to, uh, to put that allocation in place. So let's talk a little about ESG. We've been hearing that this is the new wave now for, I don't know, 10 years. It seems there's a lot of chatter about it, but there hasn't been a whole lot of uptake from the, either the end investor or the advisor. What are your thoughts on environmental, social, and governance? Why has it been lagging? When we look at Europe, they're far more aggressively invested in that space yeah. than, than the U.S. is. Well, let me start. Uh, from, from a public company point of view, mm -hmm. uh, we are feeling it from our investor base. And so they, just the focus on what are you doing and wanting to understand what TD Ameritrade's position in this space is uh, actually uh, causing us to spend more time uh, putting energy into it. So it shows you that the underlying trend is absolutely there. And you could say that there has been, albeit slower than elsewhere in the world, there has absolutely been a trend more to ESG investing. Remember 10, 15 years ago when this was, was very nascent, the constant argument was you can make those choices, but you will be sub-performing uh, sub on your investments as a result of having traded your, your, your moral case off against your just maximizing your returns. Um, that's less true now, and the trend, certainly with the younger investor, has been very much to put their money where their, their morals lie. And so it's, I think it's growing, it'll continue to grow, and I'm, as I say, I'm feeling it as a public company CEO, and we're seeing it in our business as well, it's growing. And we are starting to see advisors, you know, especially ones that serve a younger demographic, trying to incorporate that into their value proposition without a doubt. I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the uh, things that are really important to younger associates, even, you know, when you go apply for a job somewhere, they want to know what your company stands for, what your mission, your values, your purpose. I would say more so than previous generations, and I think that you know leaks over into their investing philosophies and and so on and so forth. So I think you know the uh, the trend will continue to evolve and gain more momentum as some of those younger folks gain more assets uh, on a go forward basis. They will challenge leadership as they should on what value you bring to your clients. Are you on the right side of causes and issues? Are you on, uh, do you take a stand? The, the, the uh, express desire for leadership to take stands on issues by your own associates, let alone your clients, but much more by your own associates is, uh, is, uh, is stronger and stronger. And I don't think it's abating. And I'll tell you, I mean, just from an advisor perspective or serving advisors, it's been an incredibly motivating factor for our associates, you know, to know that they pop up out of bed in the morning to help the best people in financial services do the right thing for their clients. It really makes a big difference. And if you want to get associates to feel good about what they do, you know, just talk about what you do for your clients. And obviously, your, your associates get it, but it's incredibly motivating just to be able to serve you guys when you're sitting on the right side of, of the table and sitting on the right side of history. It's, it's really motivating. So I was originally a bit of a skeptic when it came to the issue of direct indexing. I've been hearing about this for a couple of years. My friend Dave Nadig at ETF.com has been talking about this for a while. And then over the past year or two, I've noticed we have a client who's the general counsel at a big oil company. His whole life is exposed to oil and energy. Wouldn't it be great if we can just 
dial down the energy in his portfolio. We have a, another client who works in finance who's a value manager. His whole life is small cap value. Really exposed to that. What are your thoughts about direct indexing? And is this something that could basically challenge ETFs? I think you'll see two things. I think you're going to see ETFs that are specifically focused on, and they already are out there, eliminating some of the SIN stocks and Low so on. Low carbon. Exactly. You know, with, there'll be some that are just more broad-based, and then you're going to have very specific things that people can pick to you know, eradicate from their portfolios. But then I think you, what we're also looking at, and I think the whole industry is exploring, is how do you do this through technology in a cost-effective way so you can have clients do that on a custom basis? And we see a lot of our clients are starting to do that you know, manually and figuring that out, and it's becoming part of their value prop. And it's some of the things that we're having a lot of discussion around within our organization on how can we you know, help with that. And any thoughts about that direction? Is that something... You know, if, if you have an individual with 1,000 stocks instead of 80 TFs, I have to imagine there's a whole lot more complexity and a whole lot more cost that goes into that. True, but again, back to Tom's point, uh, first of all, understanding what is the unmet need that a client has? What problem are they trying to solve for? And then leverage technology to make it cost efficient to provide. It's that simple. Whatever the, 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 the need of the particular day is, yes, it can be costly, but if you can actually deliver a better solution and you apply uh, the, the, the assets and the capabilities you already have to do that uh, in a way that meets the need, there's a margin there to be had. So what is the most, this has clearly been a period of giant change over the past 10 years, certainly since the financial crisis. We in this room see it from a certain angle. I have to imagine your perspective is slightly different. What has been the biggest surprise of the past decade? What really kind of made you step back and say, wasn't expecting that? Hmm. Well, when the financial crisis happened, uh, I remember it very acutely, as I'm sure everybody else in this room does. My, my perspective was I was a Canadian banker at the time. Uh, and Canadian banks largely uh, avoided the accident. Uh, and so we had a sort of a, a, a view on what caused the accident largely uh, elsewhere in the world, you know, whether you call it the mortgage crisis, whatever you, th you thought was the case, CDSs and others. Um, since then, there was a lot of things that happened that were completely uh, knowable in advance. The size of the, uh, the event itself being the second greatest uh, financial uh, event in our history, certainly, or, or um, and you know, if you look back through history, all of the regulatory agencies that are in Western civilization were created as a result of those accidents. And the greater the accident, the more the regulatory repercussions. And so you could see that happening uh, from day one, that there will be implications. What we probably didn't see happening was just the sheer uh, flatness of the rebound. I mean, here we are 10 years later, most, if you see all of the data for all of the other recessions, they're, they're deep, but they're, they're basically a V. This one's looked like this. And so here we are literally this month and uh, makes it the longest recovery, and there's lots of dis uh, debates and discussions about, okay, well, can, can you go for 10 years plus a month without having the, a bull market tip over because all the other ones have? My own view uh, is that because of the sheer flatness of this recovery, um, there, there is a chance that it could, we could eke through the next little while, 
that's not my base case. I should say my base case is that we're actually going to be going into a bit of a recession. But there's a chance that we could actually s slide through this with this inexorable climb back to the levels we were at. Um, so the, the surprise to me is uh, just how long it takes for uh, this country and, and for the world to get back on its feet to where it was uh, after you have that size of an impact. Uh, and yet, you know, that's been our history. We, we have, this is the great thing about capitalism. It has this amazing sort of wealth creation and then there are big crashes that happen every once in a while and then you, and you have to pick your feet back up and off you go. You know, I would say a little closer to home is, you know, the financial crisis was kind of an accelerant for the REA flame. If you think about it, those big wirehouse brands were significantly damaged as a result of that. You know, consumers started to become far more aware of, you know, the relationships that they had and, and how advisors were getting paid. Advisors that were in those captive environments said, hey, I can do this better on my own. And my client's more loyal to me than they are to the brand on the roof. So I think this, the momentum that came out of the financial crisis for our space you know, was really uh, dramatic, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's been fantastic. So, so let's talk about this space and the shift from the broker-dealer model to the RIA model. There's been... Um, New re uh, regulation, it's not quite finished, but the word is that regulation best interest is coming forward. It, it turns out it's neither a regulation nor best interest, but it's a challenge to the fiduciary rule that's on our side. Talk a little bit about the fiduciary rule and what does it mean when the brokerage side is trying desperately to sound like they're under a fiduciary obligation. Yeah, so tomorrow uh, the SEC is going to vote on this, and Skip is in Washington, uh, and he'll be there at the uh, at the event, and uh, it's 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 pretty pretty incredible. But you know, we believe right that there's still you know delineation between the 40 Act and you know Reg BI or however brokers are are governed in the future. And we do think that there should be a, a heightened standard for, for the way brokers behave. But we're very thoughtful around making sure that the waters don't get muddied, because that could be a bad thing, right? You don't want a situation where a broker who's really acting as a salesperson mm -hmm. is positioning themselves as an advisor and saying, yeah, I have to put your best interests you know, first, and, and maybe they, they're not. So we're concerned about consumer you know, confusion and what that may bring to the table. But of course, we want to make sure that there's elevated standards uh, out there as well. And you know, one of the challenges that we saw even with the DOL, it's great in spirit, but implementation was you know, really going to be a challenge. I remember we were actually in this room a few years ago where we had somebody give a presentation for an hour and a half, and one of the leading attorneys on what the DOL rule was going to look like, and people walked out of here more confused you know, than they, they were when they walked in. So I think keeping it simple is, is something that, uh, that will be very important. I know there's the, the you know, four-page disclosure document that's going to be required. So we'll see what tweaks ultimately you know, get made. They're talking about potentially making tweaks to incidental advice. What does that really mean? Seems a little bit like the Merrill Lynch rule that we saw you know, uh, some years ago. But ultimately, I do think it's a good thing to raise the standard on brokers, but we want to make sure we keep that clear delineation between the fiduciary standard and the 40 Act and, and whatever it is uh, that's going to ultimately govern, govern yeah, brokers. Yeah, at a macro level, I'd say, it's going to be a better thing generally for consumers, not as good a thing for the RIA space. And what I mean by that is the confusion that consumers will have about the advice 
and what is advice? We, again, we, we think of it because we're all inside baseball here. We all know the regulations. We know the consumers don't care or, or they just assume. They, they assume that the advisor starts with their best interest. You say the word fiduciary and they don't really get what that is. It just it muddies the water. So the distinction for the RIAs from the broker-dealer model is going to be, if it passes, is going to be, in my view, a little bit muddied. Which, again, you could say the consumer would better be better off if it drags the brokerage uh, community, if you will, closer to doing better for uh, the client and more in their best interest. But it won't be necessarily um, as distinctive an offering for the RA industry. Am I too cynical when I say reg best interest is designed to muddy the waters on purpose? It's not best interest. It's clearly not fiduciary. It sounds like that name was designed to be confusing. I don't know that that's the case. I think it was a it was a was very much a reaction to look the the Department of Labor rule was well intentioned, but it was uh, flawed in execution. It, it created more confusion because you were dividing it down the ERISA line as opposed to across um, across uh, all types of investments. And so this is an attempt to try and find, um, uh, frankly, a compromise solution. And we know what. You know, you get when you get a compromise solution. That's, uh, what do they say? A, um, a camel is a horse designed by a camel. There you go. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's the best example of, of exactly what you'll end up getting. But I think also if you look at what's happening in the states, right? I mean, you're seeing states now start to, you know, propose fiduciary rules, which shows you there's an appetite, you know, there, there's a demand. Something's got to happen. And in the states, that's actually a little bit scary because imagine if you're all of a sudden dealing with 52, you know, different standards, you know, especially for advisors that operate in multiple states, firms like TDA, you know, obviously that operate in every state, and even services that we provide to our, you know, clients that want to be in control and, and do it themselves, things like research that we provide or educational materials could potentially fall under a fiduciary standard, which doesn't make a lot of sense, and then you start limiting consumer choice. So, uh, so we have to be careful of how this moves going forward. So now let's, in the last five minutes or so we have, let's look forward. What does this industry look like 5, 10, 20 years in the future? So I think you're going to continue to see the REAs grow and mature. I think you'll see far more automation that we see to, than we see today. I think basically everything from a tactical perspective or a day-to-day -day operational perspective will be done on an automated basis. And the real value that's going to get delivered is going to be with that person-to-person relationship, you know, that empathetic human relationship is really where I think the value gets delivered today, and I think that that's going to be exacerbated in the future. I think it's going to change, you know, where we make our strategic investments as business leaders. I think it's going to change who we hire based upon their skill sets. We talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, it's no longer going just to the business schools and hiring that person who's a, a quant type thinker. It's about going to the humanities schools and pu pulling in the psychology majors, the sociology majors, the people that have a knack for developing you know, relationship with clients to deliver on those services. So I think there's going to be a lot of change in this space. I think demographics is something that we need to take a, a, a serious look at. How do we make sure that our industry is more reflective of 
of the, the trends of, of the population in the United States and where wealth is concentrated is going to shift. So there's going to be a lot of change you know, over the next 5 to 10, 15 years. But I do think you know, this space is going to continue to win because it's just the better business model. Put the client first, and good things will happen. Tim, what are your thoughts looking out a, a decade few, or so? A few more ads. Um, there will continue to be consolidation in this space. Uh, because the investment required to deliver on what Tom was just saying is going to get more and more and more, and it's going to be you'll want to spread it over more and more clients, because that's the other big trend, which is it'll continue to get cheaper for clients. Um, and so, if you have the scale, you can continue to provide those uh, those additional value-added services for uh, the clients, and they will demand with greater transparency. Uh, you, uh, all of us, collectively, working in their best interest for, for low price. It's just what they will demand. That'll be the inexorable trend. And technology is going to drive that. When you say consolidation, are you talking at the custodian level, the advisor level, or across the board? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it requires scale, and we're going to continue to see bulk develop, and that's, that's what's absolutely necessary. Yeah, you think about starting up any size company now that's trying to compete in that milieu of, uh, of uh, a price point that is maybe a third of what it would have been you know, 10 or 15 years ago. It's tough. And so uh, I think it'll just continue to be, you'll, you'll be driving more and more value. You can create scale quickly through, the, uh, through technology and what it can provide. You, just, you can just buy pieces. You know, we often use the case that you've got the Ubers of the world and the Airbnbs of the world are these massive global scale, scale players, and they didn't exist five or ten years ago because they knitted together um, you know, assets and, and through technology. Um, but you know, scale from a, for lower and lower and lower price is going to be incredibly important. And I, I save this for my last question because I get it all the time from clients, and I know I do a terrible job answering this. Can you explain the historical relationship between TD Ameritrade and TD Bank? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, actually, it's a great point. It is a point of confusion for us, right? Um, so back in 2015, when uh, TD, that had TD Waterhouse, of course, sold uh, its uh, DI business, uh, direct investing business, to uh, Ameritrade and took back 32% of the ownership. So now TD Bank um, has 42% of the ownership. Um, and you're right about the, the, the confusion because uh, we often have clients walking into our branches and saying, hey, I want to deposit a check for my bank account. And they have clients walking into their bank branches on the East Coast and saying, hey, I want to talk to my advisor about my, uh, my uh, brokerage account. And so uh, the, the historic relationship is, is powerful in the sense that what it allows us to do, TD Ameritrade, is to be focused. And uh, we have what we call a capital light model. And by taking these deposits, sweeping them over to a bank, it has meant that we haven't needed to become a bank. And if you think about that environment that we've been over, especially since the financial crisis, the regulatory scrutiny and pressures on the banks, and some of our competitors have felt that sting uh, quite acutely over the last decade or so, um, we've avoided much of that accident. We've, we've avoided the additional regulatory uh, pressures uh, we can be generating higher return on our, uh, our equity by having this relationship not becoming a bank. And it just allows my management team to very much focus on being a better provider of, of our institutional services and, and being a better retail broker. That's my conversation with Tim Hockey and Tom Nally. It really was quite interesting, and uh, I learned a lot, meaning a lot of people who have been with TD as a custodian for quite a number of years, not very often we get to stop and think about how our assets are custodied 
and really uh, it's a key part of, of asset management, uh, especially from the registered investment advisor side. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the previous 250 such episodes that we have done over the previous five years. Be sure and check out uh, our podcast in the coming weeks. July 12th is the five-year anniversary of Masters in Business, and we have some special things planned. We think you're going to like them. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Atika Valbron is our project director. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Michael Boyle is our producer slash booker. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters of Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.